Are there still public service announcements on TV? Do they still have those? Do you remember public service announcements? The following is a public service announcement. I feel like this sermon should have a public service announcement. It would go like this. The following is a public service announcement. Today's sermon will deal with the controversial topics of God's foreknowledge and predestination of certain people to eternal life. I will now ask the deacons to lock the doors so that none of you can flee before we undertake such a conversation. Obviously, I am joking, but only about the you fleeing part and the deacons locking the doors part because those very words show up in today's passage. And the idea of God's foreknowledge, predestination, election, those are uncomfortable topics. They they just are. The idea that God has chosen some people for eternal life necessarily means that there are other people God didn't choose in the same way for eternal life. The, the, those ideas that can be, that can be angering, can be offensive, it, at the very least troubling. It's a topic uh, that a lot of us would just rather ignore. Um, it's uncomfortable. I get it. I think it is too. But it's not an isolated incident in today's passage. When Paul is opening the book of Ephesians, look at what Paul says in Ephesians 1, talking about God. He says, For he chose us in Christ when, before the foundation of the world, that we may be holy and unblemished in his sight and love. Well, how did God do that? He did this by predestining us to adoption as his sons through Jesus Christ according to the pleasure of his will. Somehow it's true that God chose some people before he created anything he created, chose some people to be saved, but somehow it's also true that every person can make a choice to believe that what Jesus did at the cross, he did for them. And whosoever believeth in him, I don't know if you've heard this, but will not perish, will have eternal life. Somehow, both of those things are true. It's enough to make your head spin. Why does Paul write about it? I mean, it's here. The words are in the text in multiple places. Why are they there? Why is this the way it is? Um, why does Paul feel the need to tell, tell us about it? Multiple churches about it in his letters. You know, this is one reason why, today's passage is one reason why, or an example of why, I prefer what's called expository preaching. That just means my normal practice here will always be to take a book of the Bible and teach through that 
one paragraph basically at a time, book by book, verse by verse. There are times where I'll do a sermon on a certain topic, okay? but for the most part, here we will be going through a book of the Bible. Uh, lots of churches do series on, we're going to do a series on parenting, we're going to do a series on giving, we're going to do a series on marriage, we're going to do whatever. And that's great, and you can learn some fantastic things here. One reason, there are others, but one reason I like expository preaching where I take one paragraph, study it, and do my best to exposit, which means to explain and to hash out and help us all apply it in our lives. One reason I like that is because it makes us deal with the hard parts. I I don't skip it. Like this... If you read enough of this book, you're going to find something that offends you. You do not agree with the God of the universe 100% of the time. We just don't. And if I was left to my own on just deciding what we were going to cover now, I'm not sure I would talk about this. When it's here and it comes up, we have to deal with it. So we're going to deal. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to deal. Now, where are we at? This predestination, foreknowledge, all this stuff we're going to visit about today, it doesn't come out of thin air. It's a part of what Paul has been talking about. Here's where we pick up today. Set the context. Paul just told us, this was last week's sermon, Paul just described for Christians what happens when we pray and we ask for something that God's going to say no to. I might pray, God, heal this. And that might not be what what is best in God's will for me to be healed of that. So the Holy Spirit within me will jump in. He will intervene, intercede, get involved And he will edit my prayer before he sends it to the home office. And he will pray in a way where he knows the Father will say yes. So instead of praying for that healing, the Holy Spirit might say, Father, I know he wants healed. But what he really wants to pray is that you would give him strength while he's not healed. And we get help even when we don't get what we ask for. That was what Paul just said. He's still thinking about how the Holy Spirit, how God helps us even when we get, we don't get exactly what we want. And now we're ready to read today's passage. He's still talking about how the Holy Spirit, how God helps us even when we don't get what we want. And Paul, beginning in Romans 8, 28, says this. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. How does he do that? Well, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that that son, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So we start Romans 8, 28. It is one of the loveliest uh, and most famous promises in all of Scripture. There's a lot to unpack if we are going to understand uh, this promise correctly. Here's the promise. We know that all things work together for good 
to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. They don't just accidentally work good. That's why some of our, uh, our translations say, we know God works all things together for good. Before I tell you what this does say, I want to tell you what it doesn't. First, this is not merely religious optimism. This isn't Paul promising, if you just hang in there, Christian, whatever you're dealing with is going to turn around. Your circumstances are going to get better. That cannot be what this promise means. If that's what this promise means, then John the Baptist deserves his head back. Right? He's my go-to example to this. John the Baptist hung in there. He believed. He prayed. And the bad guys cut his head off. So this can't mean hang in there, believe hard enough, pray just right, and your circumstances will improve. Sometimes they don't. Also, this promise isn't for everyone. Most people in the world today will not get this good that is promised in this verse. And even if you are a recipient of this promise, if you can depend on this promise, God is going to work everything together for good um, because you are someone who loves God. One more thing this doesn't mean. This does not mean that everything you are experiencing is necessarily good. That God can work all things out for good is not the same thing as saying what you're going through is good. As Christians, we do not have to convince ourselves what is touching my life right now is somehow good. People get abused. It's not good. Cancer is not good. A car accident where someone is paralyzed, not good. And we don't have to somehow convince ourselves that's not true. This world is, wake up and smell the brokenness, everybody. And, and I make a kind of a big deal out of that because, boy, this verse gets used by well-meaning Christians in some cringeworthy ways. <laughs> right? Somebody is going through something that's not good. That's terrible. That's painful. That's devastating. And if a Christian friend will quote this verse to him kind of like this, well, we know all things are good, right? We know God works all things together for good for those who love him. So what are you so sad for, right? Stiff upper lip. Can't be all that bad. No. No. There's a reason John the Baptist sent his disciples, go find Jesus. They're going to cut my head off. This is not good. Paul does say, so what is this promise? Paul says, all things will work together for good. How many things? Try that again. Say it out loud. How many things work together for good? That's a lot of things. Are there still bad things? Yes. So you're telling me even the bad things, God can work out and they'll become good. That's what he says. 
Sometimes I think as Christians, we need to give ourselves permission to suffer when there's suffering. The Bible wouldn't call it suffering if it didn't really stink. We need to give ourselves permission to say, God, this is, there's evil touching my life. This is bad. But here's the promise. When it's your little girl, when it's your son about whom the doctor opens the door, comes in and says, I'm sorry, it's cancer. When it's your doorbell that rings three o'clock in the morning, terrified you open the door and there is a state trooper and a preacher standing out there. When it's your spouse that says, I've found somebody else, I'm leaving. None of those things are good. You don't know how big God is? Somehow God can use bad things and someday, someday promise us he will make everything work out for good. Without sometimes even changing those situations on earth. You ever hear the word synergy? That was a buzzword in business a few years ago. Maybe it still is. I don't know. I worked in a cubicle once at a nuclear power plant, and that's when synergy was a true story. I'll tell you later. Uh, Synergy is this idea that, like, the efforts, the sum of all of our efforts winds up, uh, I don't know, how do I want to say that? Like, all of our efforts... The sum of those is the, the end we wind up with is greater than the sum of those parts. That was it. That was close to what I'm trying to say. You know what I mean? Like, if you add up everybody's effort, we should only get this amount of good, but somehow when we all work together, we wind up with this much good. Um, guess what? This word that gets translated work together, the Greek word, I'll just pronounce it for you, synergy. It's where we get, it's synergy. This is synergy. Somehow God can take I said that wrong. Somehow God promises he will take. For the right kind of person, and I haven't told you who the right kind of person is yet, but for the right kind of person, God promises he will take everything, all the things that have ever happened to that person, stir them up and work them together, and they will become someday something that's very, very good. That's the promise. But who gets the promise? All things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. I want you to notice these are the same people. The people who love God are the people who are called according to his purpose, not two different groups of people. So what's this mean? How much do you love God? You got to love God enough. How do we love God? I don't have time. I wish I did to give this the full treatment. Because I can show you this in the scriptures. I did it in a sermon in Matthew one time. There is only one way human beings can love God. And it is through the cross of Jesus Christ. In short, the people who love God are the people who believe on Jesus for their salvation. 
You cannot approach God any other way except for the cross. You can't talk good enough about God. You can't try to be good enough and behave well enough. If you don't approach God through Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross, you don't love God. Because you cannot love the Father and reject his Son. Jesus said, if you love the Son, if you have the Son, you have the Father. If you reject the Son, you reject the Father. The only way we can love God is by loving Jesus and his cross. Uh, Jesus' maybe best friend, John, he said it this way, 1 John 4, John said, here's real love. Not that we tried to love God, but that he loved us by sending his Son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sin. And then a few verses later, John said, we love God. How? Um, we, we love God because he did what? He loved us first. How did he love us? Through the cross. We can only love God in response to how he loved us at the cross. So, so far, track with me. You got to put your brains on for this sermon, by the way. We've been promised that if we've received the gospel by faith, if we love that God offered me a way to be in relationship with him through the cross of Jesus Christ, I love Jesus, I love the cross, that means I love God. If I'm that kind of person, I have this promise. All things are going to work together and be good. Now, what is the good? What is the good that will be worked out? And what does it have to do with being called according to his purpose? Now, check this out. The good we get has to do with God's purpose. So what is the good? And why did God, what purpose does God have in making sure he's going to work everything out for me and you for good? To answer that, I want to start in kind of a funny place. I want to start in the middle of what we have left in this little passage. Verse 29 says this. The whole of verse 29 says this. Because, or for, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that, in his, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers. Um. There's one too many that's on the screen. I don't know where that, that other that came from, but this is what I want to focus on right here. Here is the purpose for which God makes all things work together for us. Why is God, do you want to know, do you want to know why God's going to make everything work together for good for you because you love him? You want to know why? So that his son will be the firstborn among many brethren. And that, that doesn't need to be, that can be gender uh, non-specific. So ladies, you're, it can be brothers and sisters. Why would God work everything out for your good so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters? That's why. Now that takes some splaining. So I need to explain to you. That's the purpose for which God will work everything out for good. So we got to do a little sidebar away from this text, okay? All right. God decided at some point in eternity past 
that he wanted to display attributes that were innate to him that he had never been able to display for all of eternity past. He wanted to display his justice, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness. God wanted to display those things. How's God going to display justice if there's nothing to punish? Justice is when someone gets what they deserve for what they've done. God was always just. How could God be just if he didn't allow sin that needed to be punished justly? God wanted to demonstrate mercy. How is God supposed to demonstrate his mercy if there's not sin that deserves to be punished so that God can withhold that punishment and be merciful? See where we're going? We can do the same thing with forgiveness and with grace. So here's what God decided to do just because God wanted to display those attributes. He created this universe out of nothing. And in this universe, he took this tiny little blue planet. We call it Earth. He created that, and he put a species of his special creation on it. He called human beings. And God created human beings with the ability to make their own choice as to whether or not they would obey God. And even though God did not invent, God did not uh, author, God did not cause sin, when God created human beings, he knew they would. Because he created them to show his justice, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness. So in this plan, before he ever created anything, I'm going to create human beings. I'm going to give them the choice to obey me or to miss the mark of obeying me. We call that sin. I know they will choose to sin. And so now, God wants to be just, which means he has to punish every sin. But he also wants to be merciful, not punish some sin. Do you see the problem for a good God? God cannot just say, oh, let's just forget about your sin. Because then God wouldn't be just. God can't just forgive sin because he's just. And so Paul told us in this book, the gospel. It was always God's plan to show his justice and his mercy at the same time. And ground zero is the cross of Jesus Christ. God always knew the cross of Christ was coming before he ever created anything. This is not the plan God figured out as he went along. He knew at the cross, I'm going to offer my son as a sacrifice. And there, Paul told us, God could be just, punish every sin, and justifier, which means declare people righteous who aren't actually righteous. Just and justifier of those who would, be, who, who would believe. That's God's plan from eternity past. He knew the cross was coming. Next question. When God created, well, we'll go to Jesus' lifetime. 
Was God the Father proud of His Son? Was He proud of Jesus' obedience? Was He proud that He lived a sinless life? Was He proud and happy of His one beloved Son who was obedient, even though God the Father asked Him to die under the weight of sins He never sinned? Was God proud of Jesus? Did Jesus deserve to be honored and glorified because of that level of obedience? Yes. How many people will be in heaven someday because of their level of obedience? How many? Show me on your fingers. One. His name is Jesus. The Messiah was always going to be a king, a king who reigned over a kingdom. Are there going to be lots of people in heaven? Yes, myriads and myriads. People from every language and tribe and tongue and all that stuff. Why will we be there ultimately? Do you know why? To honor the one who got us there. Paul already said all that right here. You know why he did all this stuff? So that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers. All over the Bible we see this. There's going to be a king, a Jewish king, the Messiah, the Christ. He is going to reign righteously over a kingdom that will never end, and it's going to be filled with people. Another thing, another thing we read in the, in the Bible, that's why I have this picture on the screen. You ever hear, uh, you ever hear heaven compared to a banquet or a feast? Guess, guess, what, guess who the guest of honor is at the feast? The son. Jesus told a parable about this one time. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like this dad who was throwing a wedding feast for his son. This king was throwing a wedding feast for his son. And so he sent servants out, invite the people to come to the feast. Remember the story? And some, some people, I, I don't have time for that. I'm not coming to that. So he said, oh, can go find everybody else. Go get the low lives and the dregs of society. That's us, by the way. Go get the low lives and the dregs of society and invite them to come to this feast. Why in that parable was the king so worried that people show up to that banquet? Because it would be a shame if nobody came to honor the one in whose honor a banquet was thrown. Think about that. If you, if you threw a party for your son or your daughter for their great accomplishments and nobody bothered to show up. So here's what God did. From eternity past, he said, I want to be just and merciful. I want to be forgiving. I want to be gracious. I want to show the whole cosmos those things about me. It's going to require me to sacrifice my son one day on a cross under sin, under the penalty of sins. He never sinned. And then for all of eternity, I want him to be honored and glorified and praised for pulling it all off. And God said, I'm not going to leave to chance that none of these human beings I create will choose to show up to the banquet. I'm going to make sure the banquet is full. Does that make sense? A little bit? If it does, it's going to make the rest of this go down a little bit easier. That's 
God's ultimate purpose for humanity, God created us for him to, to, to glorify him by showing his justice, his mercy, his forgiveness, all those things. And then to honor the son that forgave us. By the way, firstborn just means preeminent. Jesus wasn't born first out of all the people who are going to be in heaven. Right? It means preeminent. Um, first heir, the double portion. Okay. Our eternal life then is about the honor and glory of Jesus Christ and the Father who sent him to die. As soon as God decreed this plan, he was going to make sure that his son would have a kingdom to rule over that would be filled with people. He did not leave it to chance. And that's why Paul tells us the rest of verses 29 and 30. This ellipsis right here, a dot, dot, dot. That's what, I, what we just talked about. So the rest of this is what's often called the golden chain of Romans 8, 29 and 30. The reason it's called a golden chain is because once somebody is on one of these links, it will not be broken. They will be carried to the end. Paul says this, because those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That will happen for us in heaven. And all those he predestined, he also called. All those he called, he also justified. All those he justified, he also glorified. That's the rest of our passage. God wanted his son to be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. How would God guarantee that his son would have many brothers and sisters in eternity before the foundation of the world? Here's how. Let's go through these words one at a time. Sometime in eternity past, we are told God foreknew certain people. What does the word foreknow mean? You ready? Get your pen ready. Write this down. It means to know before. <laughs> but what's that mean? It can't just mean that God was aware of certain people because God knows everyone, but he did not foreknow everyone. Uh, the, the word know in the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, has to do with an intimate knowledge of, like, uh, like Adam knew his wife and she bore a son. I'm going to let that go quickly by, right? Um, let me give you a couple of examples of the word no in the scriptures. One old, one new. Amos, book of Amos, about Israel, God said this. You are the only people I have known out of all the families of the earth. Does that mean God was not aware of any other people besides Israel? Like, yeah, I didn't even know those people existed. No, he created all of them. Like, he was aware of them, but he didn't know them in relationship. That's no. Jesus, talking about his own role as judge, one day everyone who stands before Jesus and gets cast to eternal condemnation is going to hear these words, I never, what? I never knew you. Does that mean somebody's going to come up there and Jesus is like, well, who are, who are you? I never, I was not aware you existed. Of course not. I was never in relationship with you. 
so that God foreknew certain people before the foundations of the earth because he was going to guarantee the banquet he's going to throw in honor of his son one day is going to be full. He knew ahead of time in a saving relational way a certain number of humans that he would use to demonstrate mercy and grace. There would be others that he would demonstrate justice. Every one of those he foreknew, he also predestined. You know what predestined means? It means to destine before. It means to set the destiny of someone ahead of time. These people that he knew in a saving way, he predestined, he set their destiny ahead of time, and their destiny uh, was to be conformed to the image of his son. That's predestined. We know we'll be conformed to the image of his son in heaven. So the people who are predestined to be conformed into his image, that won't happen until they get to heaven. They're not predestined if they don't get there. All those who have been foreknown by God and predestined by God at some precious day in their lives will hear, will feel the call of God. They will be called by God. You may have heard the gospel a hundred times. In one ear, out the other. But at least for people who have been foreknown and predestined, someday they're going to hear the call of the gospel in a way where it sort of overwhelms them. They get it. And they will believe, oh yeah, I've heard this a hundred times, but I get it. Jesus got my execution. I deserve that. He took it on my behalf. I believe he came to save me from the punishment my sins deserve. He stood in my place there so that now there's no more condemnation for me. That's the call. When someone is called and they believe, they are justified. God's call never goes unanswered. The call, though mine sometimes is. They are justified. Paul has talked over and over and over about being justified. That means God will declare that person to be righteous, have the requisite righteousness required for entrance into eternal life. That's justified. And then Paul says, everyone he justified, he also glorified. That that is still future for us. I love Paul writes it like it's already done. It's so sure. He writes it like it's a done deal. And that's the passage. Now, why did Paul, why did Paul pick this point in this book to tell us about all that stuff that sort of makes our head hurt? And what does it have to do with God working all things out for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose? I want to end by explaining those two things. Paul told us about this for our comfort. Do you know that? Paul told us about this foreknowledge and predestination thing. Election, he calls in Ephesians. For our comfort. Sometimes it doesn't feel very comforting. But that's what it's for. Here's why why the Bible never tells us about these things. 
It never tells us about these things so that we can think, hey, I'm on this chain because I know I believe the gospel. I'm justified. I'm waiting to be glorified. It never tells us that so we can draw a line and look at those people over there and say they are not foreknown and predestined and called and justified and waiting to be glorified. It never draws a line between people who are and who aren't on this chain. Do you know why? Because you and I have no way of knowing who the, who the people who are not in this chain are. Do you know that? Do you know someone who's not a believer? Do you know someone who, if they died today, would be condemned by God? I do too. But you have no idea whether or not they were foreknown and predestined before the foundations of the earth and just haven't been justified yet. We have no way of knowing who the non-elect are. It's a ridiculous thing to talk about. We have no way of knowing. This is always written for the comfort of people who have suddenly realized, wait a second, I'm on the chain. I'm on the chain. Think of who Paul's writing to. Paul's writing to Roman Christians under uh, a leader called Nero who's going to start dipping them in pitch and lighting them on fire. Paul says, I want you to know if you love God, if you've been called according to His purpose, what's His purpose? To glorify Christ with your presence in heaven. Your eternal life isn't about you. It's about honoring the one who got you there. If you have been saved, if you've been rescued, if you've been justified, you were foreknown before the foundations of the earth, predestined, called, justified, and every single person on that, in that chain is going to be glorified. And God can work all things together for good. Guess what the good is? Right here. You are going to be glorified one day. Why? Because you deserve it? No way, because Jesus deserves it. He deserves the banquet hall to be filled with people who will praise and honor and glorify him forever and ever and ever. Now, that still makes your head hurt? That's okay. Um, if you know what Reformed theology is and five-point Calvinism, I want to tell you, I'm not even one of those things. I'm not going to make you, we're not going to try to make you believe in all of those things to come to church here. We can all grow together. But I can tell you this, I didn't, I didn't used to believe it at all. But you know what starts to change my mind? Like the words are in the Bible. Like, I don't know what else to do with it. I don't like the idea that God chooses some and didn't choose someone else. But he's God. Something else I will tell you, some people believe that there's, an, like, there's like an on-ramp right here on the chain. Which means God guaranteed he was going to have a full banquet. And he called X number of people. And now more can join the chain later. If you want to think that, that helps. I'm okay. It won't work out any different for us anyway. We are commanded to go and tell. Paul's going to tell us. They're not going to hear without a preacher. They're not going to be saved without the gospel. It's the only way. We've got to tell and proclaim like it's up to us. And we pray like it's up to God. So, to put all that together, 
we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to the purpose. What is that good? And what is that purpose? It's glorified saints, glorified sinners, glorifying Christ forever and ever. That's the good God promises to work out in your life if you love him. And it is way better than, than him healing some temporary thing in my life and making me live for another three decades before I die. I would rather have eternal good than temporal good. But how can we be sure? How can we be sure when, when I'm being dipped in pitch and the guy's got the torch ready to light me on fire? How can I be sure? Because all those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. It's going to happen. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Write it down, O Christian. You can know. No matter how bad and dark and heavy your life gets, God will work all things together to make it something wonderfully, unimaginably good because Jesus deserves a full banquet. Pray with me. We'll close. Father God, thank you for your word, even the hard parts. Uh, thank you for next week's passage that is uh, much more uh, even encouraging and, and sort of fun. But God, thank you for deciding to not just be just, but to be the justifier of sinners like us. And God, as we close our time, we want to, for the first time in a long time, share communion like you commanded us to do, where we remember the only way we could be justified. Because at the cross, you became the just and the justifier of those who love you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for the sureness we have in our salvation because it's not about us. It's about you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and stand up with us and